Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter, chapter 1. We'll be jumping into Isaiah next week, and we'll be there for what I'm sure will feel like the rest of our lives. But I wanted one kind of, another one-off sermon before we jump into that, an opportunity to kind of speak to the new year. So 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for when He received honor and glory from God the Father… And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Let's pray. Uh, Lord, You've spoken to us many times in Your Word this morning. Psalm 147, James 1, 1 Peter 1 now, 2 Peter 1. We ask now that You would speak in its preaching, and we pray that we would have the ears and hearts to hear and understand, believe, and that we would obey You. For Christ's sake, amen. I guess it's appropriate to start with a word of congratulations you made it to 2023. I guess for some of us, that's probably like, well, okay, no big deal. I mean, cool, it was just another year. But for some of us, that's a pretty substantial accomplishment. I mean, actually, if you think about it, for some of us, last year after 2022, after 2021, after 2020, that is an accomplishment, isn't it? To make it this far. And some of you, you've walked into 2023 all well-dressed and happy and excited, bouncing along after a new set of Christmas presents and happiness with the family. Some of you, like a plane with its engines out on fire, just kind of coasted into the new year, hoping to crash somewhere maybe into February or March if it's good. Part of what I wanted in this sermon It's not just to aim for those of us that are kind of happy and all spiffy and, you know, glad and bouncing along, but to aim a little bit more for those that perhaps are kind of coasting in, engines on fire, hoping to crash land somewhere along the way, just maybe another week down the calendar. Maybe not this week, maybe just next week. (laughs) And then you get to next week. Maybe not this week, maybe just next week. And then you get to that week, and it's maybe not this week, maybe just next, just, just one more week, just kind of this constant continuation of a controlled implosion. And to take a sermon that kind of aimed more for that kind of category of human, though not only for them, 
and to hold forth something that I think probably is fairly necessary to think about for a new calendar year. How do you make it through a year well? How do you make it through 2023 well? What, what, what is required kind of from my side of the equation, somebody who does counseling for a living, somebody who lives in other people's homes and in other people's emotions and in other people's personal space and other people's lives, who gets to watch kind of more of how humans live with uh, kind of behind the scenes than your average person? How, how do you make it through a calendar year? <clears throat> how do you keep from giving up? How do you keep from giving in? How do you keep from being a fool? How do you, how do you make it to the end? And interestingly, I think one of those kind of elements in the Scripture is that if you actually start paying attention to it, it's there constantly. <clears throat> but for some reason, I think the prosperity gospels probably ruin this as well as some other things. We overlook all of the time is that one of the the big things that God says is to to have a good life, to do it well, or to focus on all of the good things that God gives you. Like, I mean, we do a lot of times, okay, in the Reformed tradition, we're excellent about talking about sin. You're a sinner. I am too. We, We excel at talking about Jesus. He died for sinners. Yay. He gives salvation freely to us. Yay. We do a good job, I think, about talking about piety, about reading the Bible and praying and things like that. But sometimes I think maybe we miss one of those big elements in Scripture, which the Lord holds forth kind of constantly once you start paying attention to it, which is you should obey Him because He blesses you all the time, because He gives you good things because He gives you Himself, because He gives you Christ, because He gives you the Spirit, because He gives you joy and hope and peace and patience. And honestly, for most of us, the difference between that person who's kind of spiffy marching into the new year and the person who's kind of is usually how well we've done to grasp the understanding that God is giving constantly to us. Weirdly enough, the distinction between those two people has very little to do with their circumstances. I've watched people have some of the easiest life ever and just crash and burn and carnage all over the ground. And I've watched dear saints who have misery after misery after misery after misery be models of hope and charity and contentment, and kindness. I get grumpy after I haven't eaten for like 30 minutes, and they're, you know, three-quarters of the way to dead modeling Christian charity and patience, and it's overwhelming. It has very little to do with circumstances. And I think so much more about how God looks at His people and wants to give and give and give. The passage that we come to today is really dealing with a group of saints who understand intellectually that God gives constantly to his people, 
but maybe the darkness of their circumstances has gotten a bit much. And maybe they're kind of listening to the voice of the evil one where, did God really say? (laughs) Mm. I mean, I know he loves me, but eh, does he really? I mean, I know he's good, but, but is he really? I know he's kind, but is he really? I know he's wise, but is he really? How do I know that he's going to give these blessings? How, am I, how, how can I be sure that I'm going to receive all of the good promises of God? How can I be sure that all of the good things in life that he's going to give to his people, I can have? How can I be sure? And look at just the list here in, in, in chapter 1 of some of the good things that God is offering to his people Verse 2, grace and peace. I mean, some of us, what we would do for some peace, wouldn't we? Peace in our lives. Peace with our boss. Right? He or she's driving us crazy. Peace with that employee that's making us a little nutty. Peace with that family member that we, well, just leave it at that. Peace with ourselves, with our spouse, with our children. Verse 3, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. (laughs) Everything that's required to have the good life He gives. So as if peace wasn't enough, I mean, that would be for, I think, many of us, just the opportunity to have peace would be enough. It'd be like, if I could have 2023, if 2023 could be defined as a year of peace, I would give everything for it, wouldn't it, most of us? And interestingly, Peter doesn't stop there. Peace on top of that, in fact, all things for life and godliness. Verse 4 the very great promises of God. So now we've taken not just the passage here in First and Second Peter, but expanded it to cover the entirety of the Bible. So the promises all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and really back to Adam, all of the promises uh, ever since, all of God's good promises are mine. So when he promises protection, and when he promises never to leave me, and to never forsake me, when he promises me his kingdom, when he promises me hope, and when he promises me joy, and when he promises me victory. Next in verse 4, he, not just these very great promises, but that we could become partakers in the divine nature. Well, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? And we don't really think of the gospel in this kind of way, but uh, to think that part of what Christ is doing in the gospel is inviting us into relationship with the Trinity so that we are partakers, not that we ever become divine, not that we ever share in the essence of divinity, but we become partakers in the realm of divinity in that sense. We know God, we're known by God, we have fellowship with Him in Christ who is the God-man. Even beyond that, I mean, as if that weren't enough, knowing God and being known by Him. The end of verse 4, that we escape the corruption of the world. 
because of sinful desire. I mean, some of you in the room, how much money would you give if you knew in 2023 you wouldn't have to deal with temptation at all? I'd give Nikki a kiss and say, sorry, our life savings are gone, honey. They're gone. Like, it doesn't matter. It's out. I'll spend it all. A year without having to deal with temptation or deal with the lingering corruption of my sin or the world. Skipping ahead, verse 11. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we're brought into the kingdom of Christ so that He is the ruler and we are His minions. And He provides for us and takes care of us and He defeats all of His and our enemies and He conquers and is victorious, has gifts to give and resources and finances. We're part of His kingdom. And even in verse 14, here Peter writes the reason for this letter is that he's getting ready to die. And he knows it. And he's ready to die. And he wants to make sure his people are ready to die as well. To not be afraid of death. And this is one of those things that I think amuses me about our culture, probably my tremendously grim sense of humor. Um, But how much our culture is just absolutely petrified of death. Everything we do to try to sanitize it, to keep it as far away from us as possible, to keep it as far away from our homes, to keep it as far away from our places of business, to keep it as far away from our hearts. This is, for me, I think, been the part of the kind of COVID uh, experience that's been so intriguing, is to watch a culture that's absolutely petrified of death, to try to weaponize death to get us to, to behave in certain ways, and to watch the incongruence of that tear a culture to pieces, to shred an entire culture because we're terrified of dying. And to be able to have this promise that no, you'll die, you'll be ready to die, you'll die well. And not only will you die well, but what follows will be even greater. How can I be sure I will receive these good promises of God? Peace, all things of life and godliness, all of his precious promises to be a partaker in the divine nature, to escape the corruption of the world, to enter into his eternal kingdom, to be ready for death. How can I be guaranteed these things? Now Peter answers that in verses 16 through 21. How can I get these things? How can I know they'll be mine? Verse 16 is an intriguing one as it kind of takes shots at the culture around. This is not a politically correct verse. It's in many ways probably not even very nice. Ooh, I know that southern thing, you can't do that, but Peter's not being it here for the Lord's not either. Very kind, yes, nice, no. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So what Peter's saying is, is you want to know how to get all of these blessings. Do you want to know how to get the good life? You want to know why Christianity is so utterly different than everything else. It's because the very essence of Christianity, the very nature of Christianity, the very nature of what this biblical truth is, is to deal with reality. 
the real. Philosophers have called it the really real or the truly true. It's held in contrast with what the culture is operating in. It's held in contrast with what the unbeliever is operating in. It's held in contrast even with what other religions are operating in here in verse 16. Those are the ones that are following cleverly devised myths, stories told to make people feel better, lies constructed to make things hurt less. designed to make the world a place that looks a little bit more like the kind of place I want it to be. You see, friends, this is kind of the foundational idea of Christianity is that when you come to have a conversation about the Bible, we're having a conversation about reality, what's truly true, what's really real. And you think, well, I mean, thank you, Michael. That's kind of obvious. <laughs> Except, actually, if you just stop for 10 minutes and watch the news, we live in a world that's lost reality. It's gone. We've told people for 40 years that whatever you believe is what's ultimately true. Whatever you feel is what's ultimately true. Whatever you love is what's ultimately true. And now we're watching, again, a culture that's consuming itself because guess what? What I feel and what you feel doesn't line up, and so somebody's got to win, and my craziness is probably bigger than your craziness, and that's going to win, and we're just watching a culture go and just fall apart. And friends, do you think 2023 has any potential to be less? I mean, just again, watching what's happening in our kind of cultural moment with conversations regarding gender. Do you think like, you know, middle of April, America's going to wake up and be like, whoa, I don't know what that was. That was a bad dream. Now boys are boys and girls are girls. Let's go and move all the way along. Is that what's going to happen? Not likely. Not likely. Are we going to wake up as a nation and go, oh, look, all those, you know, they're not clumps of cells. They're humans growing inside of people. They're babies. We should treat them accordingly. I mean, we're trying, but likely we just wake up as a nation and kind of have that moment of clarity. Is it likely we wake up as a nation in 2023 and kind of go, oh, guess what? Truth is something outside of me, not inside of me. Our children that have been growing up in a school system, public, private, home, don't care, I'm not talking about any one specific system, that's been teaching them that their ideas are the most important thing because that's what ultimate truth is. Does that just go away overnight? I mean, not likely because I was raised in a school world that was teaching that. I'm 43. So if you're younger than me, that's the world you've been raised in too. 
You see, the, the wonderful thing is that Christianity, we don't, we don't have to be afraid of facts. We don't have to be afraid of science. We don't have to be afraid of study. We don't have to be afraid because we live in reality in a way that no one else does. One of the foundational principles of liberalism is that real and true evil doesn't exist. You may not have realized this, but it's kind of one of the kind of foundational principles of what liberalism is, is to deny evil. And I'm not talking about political liberalism. I'm talking liberalism as an agenda, theological, whatever else. It's to constantly downplay evil so it can elevate the individual. You can become the highest good because you aren't as corrupt as possible. And the consequence of that is that it will always produce irreality. It will always produce fantasy because the individual has been lifted to the highest good, to the highest truth. Now, interestingly, I think Peter does what is so common in our current, current cultural moment is that in a world in which the individual has been elevated to the highest good and to the highest goal and to the highest standard, when it comes time to make an argument, what is your basis for any form of appeal? And if, if in our current kind of cultural moment, if you're out in the world and you're kind of debate with a neighbor or having a discussion or something of the sort like that, what's the, the highest ultimate gold standard of appeal? Well, in a world that worships the individual, in a world that worships fantasy, in a world that worships irreality, in a world that worships your feelings or your sexuality, your experience is the gold standard. So that I end up in situations where it's my experience versus your experience. And who's this going to win? Well, for me, mine will always beat yours. And for you, yours will always beat mine. But interestingly, Peter kind of takes a slightly different slant on this. How do we know that God is going to keep his promises? How do I know that God is going to be faithful to me? Well, one, because Christianity lives in reality. The the Bible is, it's not a book of fantasy. It's not a, a storybook. It's true and it's real and it's substantial. It's not one of mythology. But then interestingly, 17, 18 He does that very thing to say, but and it's confirmed by our experience, the experience of older saints who have gone before. Verse 16, look at how it finishes. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. (laughs) Yeah, we were there. We've watched it. We were kind of part of His whole thing. We were, you know, we got, some of us got to see baptism. We got to watch His miracles along the way. Some of us were even there for the transfiguration where we got to watch His glory be revealed. For he received, when he received honor and glory from God, the Father's voice was born, the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from, a voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mount. We we experienced, we can confirm it. We know the Bible is true. We know that God will keep his promises. We know that you will get all of these blessings. One, because Christianity lives within reality. But two older saints have experienced it. Those who have walked with God for a long time have experienced it. They can confirm it from experience. 
Friends, some of us in the room, like I said, are wearing that plane with the engines out, on fire, kind of crashing into the new year. If you're in that category, you're not alone, first off. And make you feel any better. I'm not preaching to any one of you. I know there's a category of us that are in this category. I mean, the Spirit might be preaching to you, but I'm not. But it's important that you be reminded that you're not alone. That's the lie the devil wants to tell you. You're not alone. In fact, actually, there's a whole category in Scripture of those older saints that have experienced it, that have seen God's glory, that have watched His miracles, that have seen their prayers answered in miraculous ways, that have been a part of the prayer meeting here where we've watched miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle for decades. That can say, stay the course, friend. Stay the course. The Lord loves you and He's taking care of you. If I'm going to be honest, though, that's probably not the most convincing argument. Right? If I'm having a bad time, if I'm in a dark place, I'm discouraged and overwhelmed and, you know, crashing, kind of crash and burn. Sometimes it's not always the most encouraging thing to have an older saint sit down and say, hey, by the way, you can be victorious just like me because I've already experienced all this. Thank you. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's not. That's why verse 19 is so helpful. And in fact, I like the older translation of this one better than the new edit. We have something more sure. We have something more reliable. We have something more fully confirmed than even your experience. We have something more truly true than what your senses can tell you. And that is the Word of God. Now, this is intriguing. Many of us, we had kind of a a lesson in the last couple of years of our senses lying to us in a way that we've never experienced before. See, most humans, the way that God has made us, we trust our five senses kind of to the nth degree. If I see it, I believe it. If I hear it, I believe it. If I smell it, I believe it. If I taste it, if I feel like my senses are the ultimate gold standard. It's why it's one of the the most difficult things when uh, like husband and wife have a discussion. One heard it one way, the other heard it another way. That's always hard, isn't it? How do we resolve that one? Well, you heard it that way. I heard it this way. You're wrong because I'm right because I trust my ears and not yours. Or I saw it one way and you saw it another way. But the the intriguing thing is that many of us got COVID over the last several years. And what's one of those weird symptoms that happens along the way? Your taste buds lie to you. Or your nose lies to you. Where you drink something and you're like, hmm, this is supposed to be orange juice. Awesome. It tastes like salt water. Don't know why. My senses are lying to me. I need something more reliable to tell me what it is because my taste buds can't tell me accurately. So I go read the label. Oh, look, it is orange juice. That's awesome. Couldn't tell. Thought it was ocean water. (laughs) One of my dear friends, two years into this, drinks soda, still tastes like gasoline. That's awful. (laughs) Like, you poor thing. You go to a nice cold 
Coke or Dr. Pepper or whatever else, it tastes like gasoline. That's awful. What a sad day. What do they need? You think about it, if really, if, if this was kind of a long-term problem, you would need someone to tell you what's nutritious, what's healthy, what's, what's reliably safe to eat and drink. You would have to read the labels constantly. You would have to check to see how fresh food is. You wouldn't be able to tell. That's, in essence, what's happening here with what Peter's argument is. Look, your senses lie to you. The world around you lies to you. The devil, he is the father of lies. That's what he does professionally. He is a liar by trade. He's constantly lying to you. And even sometimes your experience will lie to you. So you need something more fully confirmed, some, something more faithfully true, something more sure than even the experience of an older saint. What do you need? You need the very Word of God. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. I love this, the way understated. To which you will do well to pay attention to. Well, no kidding. If everything around me is shifting sands, if everything around me is chaos, if everything around me feels like I'm stuck in the middle of a tornado, I need something that is sure and fixed and stable and true and real. And the only thing that is, is God himself as revealed in his word. It would do well. You would do well to pay attention to it. Specifically how? As a lamp? Shining in a dark place. And some of you heard one of my favorite stories to tell. I was a fool in college, in many ways, I'm sure, but I decided to go caving with one of my older buddies. And the story is exceptionally long, and I won't tell it all here, but it can kind of fast forward to the climax where, without anybody knowing where we were, yeah, that was genius not to tell anybody, in a cave that was unmarked on any map, hidden away on the back of somebody's private property, 50 feet below ground after having descended by rope through two separate caverns, all of our lights went out and ended up spinning roughly an hour in the dark, singing hymns, thinking that that was it, we were going to die. A lamp would have been really helpful. I mean, it's a point of like, you know, I still feel the of like, we, we thought that was it. Like we were starting to have prayer time, like this is how we're going to die. It's going to be dehydration or one of us you know, killing ourselves trying to climb out in the dark because we can't see anything. Yeah, we would do well to cling to the Word of God as if we were clinging to a lamp in a cave 50 feet underground when you have no means to see You cling to that lamp. You stay close to that lamp until the sun himself rises. And once the sun himself rises, well, then you can see fine. (laughs) But until the second coming, cling to the word of God. Stay close. Well, for some of us, Reading the Word can be a hard thing. I think God knows that. I mean, He gave us a mind, but it's sometimes quite difficult to use our mind, and I I like how there's kind of two appropriate caveats underneath this. Verses 20 and 21. Verse 20, why do you read the Bible? 
Why is the Bible this ultimate gold standard? Why is the Bible this lamp that produces light in the darkness? Why is the Bible the thing that tells me about God's good promises? Why is the Bible the source of all reality? Why is the Bible the thing that is so trustworthy? Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. (laughs) Because who gets to determine what the Bible says? God does, because God wrote it. Your idea of what the Bible says may or may not line up with that. And if it doesn't, you're wrong. My idea of what the Bible says may or may not line up with that. And if it doesn't, I'm wrong. Because knowing this first of all, that no piece of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture comes from my own interpretation or your own interpretation. It comes from God's interpretation because God is the one who wrote the Bible. Therefore, the Bible is trustworthy and true. because what He meant, not what I meant or what you meant. What, what's happening here is the Scriptures are being kind of, again, pulled into the realm of reality and out of the realm of my opinion, out of the realm of my emotions, out of the realm of my political convictions, out of the realm of my fantasy, pull it into the realm of truth, what's truly true, what's really real. It's why, I mean, it's a pet peeve, I'll be up front. But when people say, well, the, this means something to me, well, this passage means to me. Oh, it just drives me nuts. No offense. I don't really care what it means to you. I care what it means to God. He wrote it. He determines what's true. In fact, actually, that's the second point there in verse 20 and the second caveat that God himself is the one who wrote it. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. We're not clever enough to write the Bible. We're too stupid. We can't see the future. We're not good all the way through. We don't know all things. In fact, primary author of the Scripture is God Himself. And the way He wrote it, the pen that He used, were people. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God Himself wrote the Scriptures. And how did He write the Scriptures? He used people as His pencil and His paper. Their personalities their temperaments. What you have here is a fantastic kind of argument that's being built is to say, look, you want to know how to have the good life. You want to know how to have God's good promises. You want to know how to to make it through 2023 no matter what circumstances come your way. You don't trust your fantasies. You don't trust your emotions. You don't trust your opinions. You don't trust your desires. You don't trust anything from the realm of make-believe. The lies of the devil, the lies of your flesh or your heart. You trust the Word of God because God's Word is even more reliable than the aging saints in this room which are the picture of faithfulness. 
You trust God's word because he wrote it. You trust God's word because he is the one who determines what it means. You trust God's word because it is his. And because he uses it. Why does that matter? Well, believe it or not, uh, I want you to have a good life. I want your 2023 to be the good year, to be part of those years that you look back on and say when you're old and on your deathbed to say, this is when everything changed and the Lord did something in my life in a good and marvelous and grand way. It's called sanctification. And Jesus, even when he's praying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus himself acknowledges in his ministry that the word is the thing the Spirit uses to do that. Now, interestingly, there's oftentimes a a second kind of lesser thing coupled with the Word to provide incentive, and that's called suffering. (laughs) It's kind of like, you know, a horse race where uh, the horse likes to run, it likes to run fast, but the jockey has a little whip to make the horse run a little quicker. We love the Bible, we love to learn it, we love to obey it, but sometimes the Lord uses suffering to make us believe it a little quicker. And I suspect that for many of us, that will be our year this year. But instead, what do we do? We go back to the Word of God. Why? Because it tells us of His promises. It tells us of Christ. It tells us of His Spirit. It tells us of the good life that He gives us in Christ. Friends, some of us, honestly, honestly, truthfully, I know we're in a Reformed church, I know we're in a Reformed church that loves the Bible so much we put it on the wall behind us. But honestly, some of us need to have a little bit of a time of repentance because for some of us, it's that passage in James. We say we love the Bible, but we don't actually do it. We don't actually love it. We we, we say we do. We're all talk, but no action. The wonderful thing is the Lord stands ready to forgive, confess your sins, find mercy in Jesus, and hear God's promises in His Word. Father, I think we all in some fashion stand convicted, at least hopefully so. We do love Your Word, at least many of us do, I guess, but it's so easy for us to love it in theory but not love it in practice. And it's so easy for us to say that we hate the myths that the world offers or the lies that the devil offers or the lies that even our flesh offers. And to say we hate them, but to secretly love them in our hearts. To cling to those fantasies inside our head and inside our heart of what the good life would look like. If if only this thing would happen, then I would have the good life. And we confess that (laughs) the thing that we fantasize about is almost never, well, if only I knew the Bible better, then I would have the good life. We confess that our longings often relate to money or relate to people or relate to pleasures or relate to peace and so rarely relate to the Word. Forgive us 
and change us. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.